So Cameron was giving me a little, little exposure to erratosphere I don't usually get. Uh, erratosphere is, as I have talked about before, an online poetry workshop. I think it's the biggest, or it's the biggest one for formal poetry, though there are also opportunities to workshop not formal poetry on there. Now, I am a member and have gone on there occasionally, but not much. I've been in a whole lot of workshops. I've taught a whole lot of workshops. I find workshops a little bit, a little bit nauseous at this point. <laughs> so I, um, I, and I'm using nauseous in the, in the old correct sense, by the way, inducing nausea. Uh, hence the comedy of Woody Allen repeating, I'm nauseous. I'm nauseous. Uh, so I, I I don't go on there a whole lot, but he he showed me some things on there. He had posted a poem. He was commenting on some other people's poems, and I uh, so I, I enjoyed what he showed me. He showed me a pretty good draft of a poem somebody else had written and some criticism of it, and I talked to him about what I thought about the poem. And he showed me a poem of his and some criticism of it and some praise of it, and and I talked to him as well and. Uh, he, it was nice. It was a nice exchange. He said, uh, he said both, Hey, uh, this is, um, uh, you're pretty good at this and, uh, it's probably good that you're not on here, <laughs> which, which I, I can agree with, you know, as I said, as I've said before, if there's one thing I feel ostentatiously, obnoxiously confident about, it's my ability to, uh, help other people with their writing. I am pretty fucking good at that. So it got me thinking about what, what it is what it is like to help somebody else with her poetry. And I want to be real careful because this could easily sound super creepy. <laughs> and I promise I don't mean it in a creepy way, but I think that it is like going down on someone. Now, there's some obvious differences. Uh, one, a major one being that uh, generally, it feels good to have someone go down on you. And generally, when someone helps you with your writing, it doesn't necessarily feel good. Sometimes it feels awful. But there is an element of it that is a kind of a service. And similarly, it's something I do and do pretty frequently and pretty enthusiastically for people I have a close relationship with. I am happy to, to do this for good friends of mine, for my wife, uh, <laughs> I can already feel her sweating. Uh, I'm talking here specifically about uh, workshopping, <laughs> about helping with writing. That's all I'm talking about here. But it is a service. It's something you do for people. And it's something you do, I think, at its best out of a care for that person. I think it's best done by somebody who has an investment in the work itself, whether because of an, you know, whether, whether by, by virtue of having a, an ongoing investment in you or, uh, or, you know, because of a relationship in which you are both doing the same work together. You know, when you have an agent or an editor who is, who's signed on, I'm very, um, and, and, and I, and I have mixed feelings about doing this for pay. I, I also have mixed feelings about doing it for, you know, on Eratosphere, it was fun to do it with this one person's poem out of the blue, just, just with Cameron. And then it was also fun to do it with Cameron, but Cameron's kind of a friend. I mean, Cameron's close enough that, that that felt like a little bit more of an act of friendship. And then with this other woman, it was something that he and I could talk about. But I would find it exhausting and dispiriting to do that all the time. 
with people on eratosphere, even if I've got to be friends with them, it's too much. You know, you don't want to be down on your knees in a factory. You know, what's the old joke about you know, the dick sucking factory? You know, you don't want to work in the dick sucking factory, even if you like sucking dick. Uh, you'd rather do it. With, you'd rather be a little choosier about it. And similarly, I think doing it for money is uh, the money's nice, and and it's good. You know, like if you're good at something like this, then it is fun, and it's fun to probably it's fun to say like I bet I can do this better than some other people might be able to. I bet I can. I bet I can achieve something here that the people you've been talking to and you've been unsatisfied with so far have not yet been able to get done. I, I enjoy that. I like that feeling. It also is something, you know, I think it would be, it would be hard to do it all the time for money. I think it would be, uh, I think it's probably best done sparingly, which is how I've done it in the past and how I plan to continue to do it. But, but anyway, all this talk about Eratosphere got me thinking of a kind of comment I have, I have heard on there before. I've heard in other usually formal poetry circles, either in person or online or in essays. Uh, that weird website commercial poetry has, has, has done this. It's occasionally come up in email exchanges or, or sort of semi-public, semi-private uh, threads. And the comment is, it goes along the lines of this. The, the three best poets of the 20th century are T.S. Eliot, W.B. Yeats, and, and L. Bartholomew Bumblefuck, a, a, a regular contributor to such-and-such uh, such online poetry workshop. That is, there's a way of talking about peers and near peers in an extremely obscure poetry circle that 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 deliberately places them on the same level as the sort of undisputed greats. Another another version of this comment, and maybe a slightly less uh, obviously silly or silly seeming version of this comment is uh, this uh, uh, collection, this this unpublished manuscript that uh, that that so and so our close friend has just composed ought to win the Pulitzer Prize. But of course it won't because of unjust injustice. And and that also feels a little bit silly. It doesn't maybe feel quite as obviously silly. But you know, when I when I try to think about like why those kind of comments make me cringe, make me wince a little bit when I hear them, I was trying to I was trying to work through what it is exactly. Part of it is grandiosity. Anytime it seems like somebody is getting too big for his britches or just uh, or getting too big for his britches only in the sense of having an insufficiently limited sense of his own context. That makes, you know, gives me a little vicarious embarrassment. Not that as discussed in a recent EMA or as discussed in a forthcoming AMA, uh, not that I have a very high threshold for embarrassment. But whether you're talking about the the great greats of the of 20th century poetry, the, the, the big headline names in any English department or anywhere, the poetry, <laughs> the poetry ghetto of any English department, whether you're talking about that or you're talking about the people whose names are, are, you know, are generally considered as being sort of eligible 
for big national prizes. There is a sense that it's silly. It's silly for for nobodies to be considering themselves in the same category as as uh, as the big players, as the real contenders, historically or uh, con contemporaneously. Contemporarily, I'm sure that's one of those slight distinctions that I've been abusing. So there's no listed distinction, at least in the dictionary I have on hand, between contemporarily and contemporaneously. I suspect, though, that somebody could identify one because there's got to be another root there in contemporaneous, right? There has to be something. And not make is that year? Is that what that is? I don't know. It's done too. Not enough ends. Anyway, all, you know, this was this has been these kinds of questions have been on my mind partly because very recently the 2022 candidates tournament came to an end. Now the candidates tournament, by the way, in case you haven't already figured this out, uh, I'm recording this. Uh, at the 11th hour, we're going on the road tomorrow morning to go pick up my eldest from uh, summer camp. So I'm, I'm banging this out a little bit quickly and with probably less editing and uh, fewer show notes. I probably will not do show notes for this one, but I'm, I'm kind of banging this out just so I can have something fresh for y'all for this week and uh, maybe more more consideration and editing and, and a better composition uh, TK in future episodes. But the candidates tournament 10 to 15 years ago was formalized as the way every two years that the best chess players or the almost best chess players in the world would determine who got to play the world champion for his title. Once you become world champion in chess, you no longer have to qualify every year. It's not like the World Series, right, where, where the winner has to go back through the gauntlet every year in order to 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 make the playoffs and make the final series again in chess once you become world champion you get to sit there and wait for challengers uh, a a convention that the current world champion has disparaged he said that that's not the right way to do it he says it probably should be more like uh sports playoffs at any rate though every two years uh there through a series of uh, qualification procedures, the eight next best chess players in the world all get together and uh, compete. And they have, the way they do it now is they have a 14 round double round robin tournament. So 14 rounds of four games each in which the eight next best players in the world all play one another. And uh, the one with the best record uh, coming out of that um, out of that competition with one point awarded for a win, half a point awarded for a draw, and no points awarded for a loss. The, the, best, the, the one with the best record, assuming there's no need for tiebreakers, uh, gets to then challenge the world champion uh, at the next available opportunity. So this year, Jan Nepomnici won the candidates tournament. He also won two years ago. Uh, he's That was... You know, maybe not. That was not necessarily the uh, the result that everybody expected, but it certainly wasn't a a particularly shocking result. 
you know, one of the favorites this year was uh, Fabiano Caruana. He ended up not doing all that well. He's, he's probably the best player in America, or, or maybe you know, in the top two with uh, uh, Hikaru Nakamura being being the other one who's who's right up there. Um, and uh, he won the candidates the year before. Nipponichi won it for the first time, and he's a perennial favorite. He uh, also in there. Um, uh, were a number of other regular contenders. Dingley Wren uh, and Kairona have both been in the last three candidates tournaments. Um, Hikaru Nakamura was in uh, not the previous one or the one before that, but I think the one before that. Uh, when Magnus Carlsen won the world championship, he beat uh, uh, Vichy Anand, the then world champion. And Vichy Anand was then the challenger the following year. And and um, and was just and almost was uh, almost qualified for the candidates the same year that uh, Nakamura almost qualified uh, shortly thereafter. So it is not all that uncommon to have the same the same small number of contenders uh, fighting it out for the the championship every few years, right? They, they cycle in and out. Um, uh, there's, you know, well, there's some minor controversies. Uh, Sergei Karyakin, who's a, a Russian player. Uh, Nepomnichi is also Russian, but unlike Nepomnichi, Karyakin publicly voiced support for the Russian invasion of Ukraine and for that reason was bounced from the candidates tournament and replaced by, um, I think he was replaced by Timur Rajabov, who's an Azerbaijani player. And Rajabov, Rajabov was Rajabov was much more uh, low rank, had a much lower rank and was people at the time, there was a little bit of a scandal because they thought, oh, well, why, we have a second rate player now in the candidates who shouldn't be there. Now it turned out that Rajabov got third place. So he, he ended up doing much better than people expected. But, you know, people take seriously the question of whether it is actually the very best players contending. Now, the biggest news in chess at the moment is that Magnus Carlsen, the current world champion, uh, has decided not to defend his title. So it's actually the number one and number two uh, players from the candidates who will be competing for the next world championship. Ding Li Ren at number two and Yana Pamnichi at number one. Uh, part of what has bothered people about Carlsen's uh, decision is that as I think it was Danya Naroditsky said, um, Carlson is not just a world champion, he's a dominant world champion. It might have been Naroditsky, it might have been Robert Hess, I can't remember. But uh, meaning that, you know, there are different conditions in which people come to the title. Now, you can't be an umskull, right? You, you, you have to actually be one of the very, very best players in the world, but there is some element of chance. There's some element of... Uh, um, you know, Bobby Fischer declined to defend his title once he, after he won it from Boris Spassky. Uh Bobby Fischer was, you know, at the time, um, just head and shoulders above every other play in the, player in the world. And Magnus Carlsen is, I think, similarly universally recognized as the best player in the world. He's actually, along with um, Gary Kasparov, he is uh, considered by many to be the best chess player who has ever lived. Uh, you know, he's on a very short list of contenders for that title. And so if, whether Nyapamnichi or uh, Ding win the championship in 2023, 
there will be a an asterisk, right? There will be a shadow hanging over the event because as far as most people in the know are concerned, the real best player is still Carlson. So people are upset that he's not defending his title. Now, what does any of this have to do with poetry? Not a whole lot, <laughs> not a whole lot, except that when Nipponyichi won the candidates tournament to two tournaments in a row. They don't have them every year, but when he won it two tournaments in a row. And this was, you know, he 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 had he he had the best performance that anyone has ever had in a candidates tournament. He won, I think he had a score of 9.5 out of 14 cuz he he um, tied most of his games. Almost grandmasters almost always tie, you know, at that top level, the, you know, the most most games between uh, top level grandmasters and a tie and all of these were in the high 2700s to 2800s uh, in, in um, their ELO score. So the, they're, these are, you know, these are super grandmasters. Almost all of those those games are going to end in a tie. He tied most of his matches, won, I think, four of them, and lost none, which is amazing, which is really unheard of. Uh, so Nipponichi dominated. He did really, really well, and he certainly deserves to uh, play for the world championship again, despite having, you know, sort of a meltdown in the previous world championship. But the question that came to my mind was, when was the last time a poet won two Pulitzers in a row? So the real answer is never. Uh, no one has ever won two, no poet has ever won two Pulitzers in a row. Poets have won two Pulitzers in their lives. And, you know, a poet has won more, you know, more than one Pulitzer in his lifetime. And uh, a, a couple of poets have even won Pulitzer's four consecutive books, as was the case with you know some recent fiction winners, but no poet has ever won two Pulitzers in a row. The last time a poet won two Pulitzers at all was 2009 when W.S. Merwin won his second after his first was, you know, he won his first like 40 years earlier, I think. Um, 50 years earlier, maybe. Uh, In the last 20 years, you know, Merwin won that one time, but in the last 20 years, nobody who has previously won a Pulitzer for poetry was even nominated for a Pulitzer. Merwin was that one little uh, exception. Um, no, no one was on the short list, right, except for Merwin, who, who won that one time. Uh, the, the, before that, the last poet to win a second Pulitzer was Richard Wilbur, which was 1989. I think the last poet to win two in a row was Robert Frost. So Robert Frost won his fourth Pulitzer in, was it his fourth? Yes. So Frost won his fourth Pulitzer in 1943 for a witness tree. His previous one he won in, previously won in 1937. So let's see if those were consecutive. Because, uh, you know, th this does happen in fiction. Jessamyn Ward won two. Did she won the Pulitzers or National Book? They may have been National Book Awards. She won two for two books in a row. Um, uh, Sing, Unburied Sing, I think was the second one. Uh, Colson Whitehead won two books in a row for the Underground Railroad and the Nickel Boys. Hilary Mantel won two bookers in a row for uh, Wolf Hall and Bring Up the Bodies. Um, but in poetry, and those were all in the last 10, 15 years, I mean, all, in, maybe less. Uh, let's see about those books. 
by frost. Yeah, so A Further Range and A Witness Tree were two consecutive poetry collections. He had a collected that came out between them, but, but we won't count that for the purposes of this. I think before that, the last consecutive winner was E.A. Robinson, who who went on a truly um, uh, unprecedented, unprecedented streak, winning a Pulitzer in 1922, and then again in 1925, and then again in 1928. Um, and I believe those were consecutive uh, collections. But for the most part, this doesn't happen in poetry. And as I said, we, even more weirdly, the, the, the pattern tends to be not that you have the same people in the running year after year, right? The same you know group of people. But you know, part, partly you might say, well, poets don't publish a book every year, and the Pulitzer comes out every year. That's fine. But even if we're just talking about consecutive books, and to be honest, a lot of contemporary poets publish a book every fucking two years, right? So they are eligible almost as often as chess players are eligible for the candidates. But it's not that you have the same small group of people in the running year after year. Instead, what you see very frequently, I mean, the pattern, I can, I'll pull up my examples that I wrote down, but the pattern is, is pretty clear, which is that you tend to get so Franz Wright, Forrest Gander, Diane Seuss, and Mark Strand were all nominated once for the Pulitzer, and then they won. And then they were never nominated again. And by nominated, I guess I mean the short, short list of nominees. Now, Diane Seuss could be, could be nominated again. She just won recently. But I will bet $5 that Diane Seuss not only will never win another Pulitzer, but will never be nominated for another Pulitzer, at least not for the next... You know, I don't know how old she how old, how old she is or how long she's going to live, but I would guess it would be at least twenty years if she were to live another twenty years before she was nominated again. Um, Charles Simic, Charles Wright, C.K. Williams, and Frank Bedard. These, this is all within the last forty years, by the way. All within, I mean, it's, in most most cases within the last twenty years. Those four were all nominated multiple times, two, three, or four times, shortlisted two, three, or four times, and then won, and then were never nominated again, despite in some cases living for decades after that, publishing for decades. Um, it's extremely uncommon anymore to win a Pulitzer and then even be nominated. It's essentially unheard of. It hasn't happened in the last 20 years. Again, with, with Merwin being that one exception, Merwin, that was his, not his last book, but it was right toward the end of his life. And again, I mean, I wonder as with Adrienne Rich winning her third uh, National Book Award in 2000, 2011, 2009, you know, looking at it, I, I I wonder if anyone even at the time thought that was the best poetry collection published that year, right? I mean, there doesn't see it. it what, what seems very much to be the case is not that we are looking at real contenders for bestness. Not that you know, and poetry doesn't translate bestness doesn't translate in poetry the way it does in chess. But, uh, but so what? What Carlson said before he finally declined to. Compete. And I think he still has one more chance to change his mind. But, but, but before he formally declined to compete again for his, to defend his title, what he said was that he would only be enthusiastic to defend his title if it was against Ali Reza Feruja. Ali Reza Feruja being a, I think, then 18-year-old French chess player who... Uh, had a an ELO rating of tw over 2,800. I mean, truly among the very, very best players in the world at an extremely young age. And, and part of what Carlson, who's 31, I think was getting at with that was that he wanted to play the next generation 
If he was going to be unseated, he didn't want to be unseated by Nepomniachi, who's his peer and whom he'd already played and had, uh, you know, I think when Nepomniachi is at his very best, as with Caruana, when he, when Caruana and, and uh, Carlson played, it was draws all the way down. And they, they only, um, Carlson only won in the uh, tiebreakers. With Nepomniachi, it was draws, 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 and then Nepomniachi had a meltdown after a, a really amazing game six. Uh, but this was not, the, the prospect of defending his title against Nepomniachi was not exciting because he wanted, he wanted a comer. He wanted somebody who was challenging the crown, somebody who came up out of nowhere. And that doesn't happen in poetry, right? I mean, if you are playing chess really, really well, then you still have to qual you have to do your qualifications. There, there is some, there are some uh, hoops you have to jump through to become a grandmaster officially. But, but there is a sense, and there is a, there is a very real sense in which you can, you can uh, come for the king. And it just doesn't really work out that way in poetry, right? I don't think anybody even even pretends that it works out that way. And I think that's part of what people mean in formal circles when they say. Hey, uh, you, you know, these three poets, two of them extremely famous and one of them totally obscure, are the best poets of the 20th century, or are the best poets of the 21st century. Or this this uh, book of, un, this unpublished book of poems by, by a nobody nobody's ever heard of ought to win the Pulitzer. Part of the reason that sounds so ridiculous is that we, we, we know both that outside of this extremely small circle, everybody would would snigger at that suggestion. But we also know that there isn't really any system in place to test that claim. It's, it's pretty clear that the small number of people who have been anointed or uh, who have acquired whatever, you know, the position they have of being considered, um, that those people uh, are taking fucking turns with the big prizes. Right, and once you've had your turn, uh, you sit it out. They don't even bother to nominate you. You know, the, it's funny. I think back to when I was in college, and I had a I had a pipe dream when I was in college. I had a a a uh, a, a fairies and rainbows pipe dream of poetic fame. But here's the thing: I was cynical enough even then to to frame it in these precise terms. The pipe dream I had was in, when I was in college was not that I would be famous was not that I would be world-renowned, was not that I would be uh, rich for my poetry. <laughs> my pipe dream was this. The way I said it to myself at the time was, I, I hope that when I am older, I will be well-known enough that should I write a good book, anybody will notice. That is my dream was simply to make it into the inner circle of those whose work can be considered, right? Because that's really it. I mean, it, and I, I have another rant I'm going to go on soon about, uh, about the presses that publish formal poetry. But, you know, in many cases, they don't even bother to submit them. The public, the presses don't even bother to submit their books for big prizes. Maybe that's partly, there's a little bit of chicken and a little bit of egg going on there. But everybody seems to sort of understand that 
you have to you have to have made it into a particular circle of consideration in order for say say it is merit say there is some degree of merit in order for your merit to count you have you have to have already qualified to be considered and that sucks but in the meantime uh, it is, it's been nice going down on some strangers, strangers and friends lately. And I, I hope that I get to continue and, uh, and continue to, to, um, to, to hone my craft, not just at writing, but at giving literary head in a manner of speaking. I am so sorry, Joanna. Matthew Buckley-Smith, and you are listening to Slee Rickets. Thank you all for listening, and thanks especially to those of you who have taken a moment sometime this week just to recommend the show to a friend or acquaintance that you think might enjoy it. I am grateful. Uh, we've been gaining listeners slowly but steadily recently, and it is due seemingly, you know, for the most part, to this kind of word-of-mouth recommendation because... Apple Podcast sure as fuck isn't doing it for us. You cannot get... <laughs> Man, the most bullshit, sorry-ass, canceled, five years out of date, only barely tangentially poetry-related podcasts come up when you search for poetry. But for fuck's sake, Slee Ricketts does not. Come on now. Apple, what the fuck is going on? Anyway, thank you all for recommending the show to friends. Uh, thanks also to those of you who've subscribed to The Secret Show. If you haven't yet, go ahead and put uh, put your email into the go to sleeprickets.substack.com and uh, subscribe for a free one week trial. You don't have to put any, you don't have to enter any uh, credit card information, any of that bullshit. Just, just put in your email address and I will get you a free week to listen to their 10 episodes up right now on The Secret Show feed. And I've been putting out you know, about three a month, maybe sometimes more, you know, almost one a week, depending. Uh, I've definitely got some more coming up. And if you've had any trouble with that, I know one or two people, it, there's a sort of a delay. Um, just write me, write me at sleeverickets at gmail.com with uh, any questions about that or anything else. And I will do my best to help out. So I have uh, promised for a couple of weeks now to do an episode about uh, emails. Because I got a bunch of email and other correspondence largely about uh, the rabbit hole. Um, part one is on the main feed and part two is on the secret show feed. That is one. Uh, people respond to it. People respond to it in strong terms. I finally heard from Jonathan, uh, who who made the request that Brian and I disagree with each other more. And as he said, he got what he wanted and he enjoyed it uh, because we sure disagreed in the second half of that episode. Uh, heard from a number of people who didn't necessarily, it wasn't clear if they wanted their name shared or not, so I won't share them here, but some said that Brian went easy on me. Some said that he was 
uh, intolerant. Some said that I was alarmingly conservative, which, which you know, I, I understand, I guess, but like I've, you know, I only vote for Democrats. And I feel like, I think like maybe Brian's a little more progressive than I am and I'm a little more leftist than he is, but we don't disagree that much when it comes to policy. Brian had commented to me that um, some of his, some of his sharper remarks had gotten cut. So I did ask him if he wanted to to reinsert any of those, and he seemed pretty happy. He he said he he, he was happy with how the episode came out. Uh, all in all, though, I I don't want anyone to get the impression that his tongue is insufficiently sharp. He's he's pretty good at saying what he means to say. I got I got a really good note from Ethan. So Ethan wrote. I'm not sure what kind of feedback you're receiving about this week's Slay Ricketts episodes, The Rabbit Hole Parts 1 and 2. I hope the feedback is positive, but I fear it might be negative. Either way, I wanted to write you to let you know I enjoyed the conversation. I am a staunch Christian, but we need explorations of faith like The Rabbit Hole. Thank you, especially for the honesty you and Brian, from what I can tell, exhibited in the episodes, even if Brian sometimes showed a surprising lack of empathy for a novelist. Ha ha. I think Ethan also remarked on Twitter that uh, Brian is the real asshole uh, of the of the uh, Slee Ricketts media empire. <laughs> I got a couple of remarks to that effect. I think he also said, uh, we're not allowed to pity you. <laughs> we're not allowed to feel bad for you because Brian uh, Brian was a great refuser of pity. <laughs> yes, as Andrew Palmer also put on, said on Twitter, although you are a small, pathetic, pitiable creature, I refuse to pity you. So there, Brian. Uh, Ethan also wrote one note on the fundamentalist comment in the episode with you and Brian saying you don't disdain many fundamentalists because they grew up knowing nothing else. My wife and I both grew up in deeply fundamentalist Baptist circles. Hers nearly a cult and worse than mine and we fled it though we retained our faith. A surprisingly high percentage of fundamentalist believers in the circles we knew did not grow up there. In fact, many of them were converts from some sort of secularism or cultural religion. Many of the men and women I am remembering were remarkably intelligent and educated too. This reminds me of the modern history of some Middle Eastern countries, some of which were becoming quite secular and scientifically advanced before Islamic radicalism swept them, in many cases sparked by the conversion of men in university or of that age. I think Iran is a particularly uh, acute example of that. He went on and, and had some other remarks, but uh, he, he's totally right about the fundamentalism thing. In the episode, um, it, it was slightly edited, that section, but Brian and I uh, talked. Uh, he, he said that he had a certain understanding, if not sympathy, for uh, people who grew up in fundamentalist communities um, but I, I think I think he was talking specifically about cloistered communities, um, those that are separated from the from modern culture. And uh, we we sort of breezed past that point. But he's quite right that that fundamentalists not only uh, may have had, as Ethan points out, a, a background in which they were exposed to contemporary culture, but uh, in, in many cases, they all often continue to be exposed to contemporary culture. Fundamentalism, as I understand it, is not necessarily a 
uh, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with removing oneself from the from mainstream culture it's it it has more to do with a literal interpretation of scripture i i believe i mean that will oh, let me put it this way that's what i was taught in my uh, high school and college religion courses uh, the dictionary is telling me it's really just a matter of a hard core of belief and that can go for any number of kinds of scriptures i guess and any number of kinds of any number of different hard cores they're the fundament the foundation of the faith i guess or of the of the sect uh, anyway ethan's quite right we we uh breezed past that um basic distinction uh he went on to say uh, i've come to believe that because i i noted to him that i was surprised that people seem to be i got surprising i, I got enthusiastic responses from as brian did from both liberals and conservatives and and uh, we did seem to offend both liberals and conservatives. As Ethan said, I am, I've come to believe that offending both conservatives and liberals is one of the, way, the only ways to have equality in our current political environment. I, I, don't, I don't know if it's the only way to have, a, one of the only ways to have equality, but it, uh, it does amuse me, if nothing else. Um, he says, so good job in that regard. By the way, if you really want to make Brian mad, make him listen to some of uh, James Matthew Wilson's interviews and podcast appearances. I don't doubt it. I uh, another another listener did write to tell me that uh, Wilson has had some James Matthew Wilson, um, not Ryan. James Matthew Wilson has had some pretty alarming political has made some pretty alarming political arguments in public. Uh, of that, I am not. I was not aware. I, I really am not followed any of his writing apart from the literary critical variety let's see oh and so shane wrote to respond to another specific question so he he had a he had a good exchange with brian because there was a passage that brian pointed out he read out of the james matthew wilson article that he was confused by and i shared his confusion shane tried to illuminate that a little bit he said the truth of all beings is that all beings are good because they are created slash caused by god god is good which is to say goodness is fundamental to god's being and all god's actions are good and participate in god's goodness if we could not perceive this particular goodness in beings, we could not perceive the truth about beings, that they are created slash caused by a good God. I suspect JMW meant something like that. I'm going to have to read that again because even reading it just now, uh, I started to lose the thread a little bit. The truth of all beings is that they is that all beings are good. Oh, so yeah, this was, I think, J James Matthew Wilson had said something about um, uh, their uh understanding really truly understanding anything involved seeing the good in it and i think we were a little confused by that and so uh i think shane's pointing out that that in a in in a religious worldview since god made all things and i think in genesis he looks on his creation and says that it is good um there is goodness in all things uh, the, the fundamental nature of all things is goodness and so really to see it really to perceive this you know anything is to is also to see the good in it so that i i think i follow that shane goes on he says also uh oh yeah he's pointing he's pointing out to brian that he's the second person he believes in god brian i think has some some skepticism about the fundamental goodness of all things as well as maybe the fundamental goodness of god uh uh cameron am i also asked about the episode said he he weighed in 
he and Alice, I think, both weighed in more on Brian's side than on mine. Uh, but uh, and, Cam and Cameron specifically said that he he didn't find it all that difficult to believe in God. He just found it difficult to believe in a good God or or an all loving God specifically. He said, which I which I also understand. George Carlin had an old routine about how he thought it was pretty reasonable to worship the sun because it you could see it. It was there. It was definitely way bigger and more powerful and longer lasting than anything on a human scale. It gives us life and energy. It, uh, it, it exists far beyond our ken. It rises and sets. It's, it's related to all of the cycles of life on earth. It has just as long and rich a cultural tradition as any god. I mean, a much longer and more universal one. So if you're going to believe in a god, why not believe in the sun? Of course, one of the crucial elements that the sun is lacking uh, is, 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 is all lovingness. Um, it doesn't particularly give a shit about us, which is the which is the the element of godhood that I tend to find most I tend to have the most difficult with difficulty with. I think Cameron had uh, similar feelings there. Coleman had written with with a, with a very characteristically long and interesting email, which I ended up discussing with Cameron on an episode that's going to be coming out. Uh, and Alice had a. A few things to say about that as well. She also offered a response to the rabbit hole saying, I hope you feel what I felt listening that Sleever because it's truly hitting its stride. Nice of her to say. You said a lot in your intro about how you thought they might offend people, but over here I struggle to find anything that could be truly offensive. Alice uh, always, she sounds, still it sounds like you thought hard about putting them out. I'm glad you did. Alice is always uh, encouraging, even um, even sometimes unreasonably so. Oh, another quick housekeeping thing. If I before I forget, uh, I got some I got some really cool Slee Rickett stickers. So I partly in an effort to thwart, as my brother warned me, any any potentially alt right interpretations of the of the Slee Ricketts logo. I ordered stickers of it in, in several different colors, some in red, and, some in red, some in black, uh, but also some in teal, in magenta, and some in rainbow, copying Alice's new rainbow motif from her Poetry Says logo. So I have decided that the best thing to do with those is just to give them away. So right now I'm giving them away to any subscribers who uh, who write in and send me their address? I will just I'm just sending them out by mail. If you if you would like a sticker or three, then uh, subscribe. That's another reason to subscribe. I will give you a free week's trial of the Secret Show, and I'll also send you uh, some stickers. So go to slaverygets.substack.com for that. Yeah, I had a little more. I had a little other correspondence, but maybe I will save that for now. Um, because I think I have some other thoughts I want to connect to that one. Oh, if you haven't listened to it yet, go to um, go to Alice's most recent episode of Poetry Says. It is a scorcher. Um, she 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 talks about a few different things. Uh, a, one, a movie that I recommended to her that's a great movie about about a poet called uh, Before Night Falls. So do do go listen to that. Do go see the movie. It's a great movie. Uh, she also talks about Curtis Yarvin, who is, among other things, the the leading intellectual of the 
bonkers a new self-styled new reactionary movement uh, he happens also to be a poet so she she does some close readings of a couple of his poems and talks some about his bizarre shtick uh, anyway it's a very fun episode i'll include a link in the show notes but i think for now because it's it's uh because it's late as fuck i am gonna i think i'm, I'm gonna be putting out the ama the ama came out really well i edited it down but it's it's still quite long i'm gonna have to put it out in two parts and it's gonna be really fun maybe i will include or maybe maybe what i'll do is i'll include a preview of the ama because i think what i'm i think i'm gonna i'm gonna release the ama on the secret show maybe both halves maybe just one half uh, on there but either way what i'll do is i'll include a preview of the ama at the end of this episode just for your enjoyment and uh and uh you will be able to hear the rest of that soon if you go subscribe there was something else i wanted to talk about but i fucking forget so maybe i will just end with a poem so since i have been talking today about sex and religion i thought this would be a good a good poem to close with this is called gods it's by hayden carruth and uh and this is one i loved back when i believed in god hey everybody you may notice that the audio suddenly sounds rather different that's because i am in the mountains uh, i was doing a quick perfunctory edit of this episode before releasing it and then i listened to the poem that i read and my comments on it and realized that I was an idiot. So I thought first about just cutting that whole section, but then I figured I would let you enjoy listening to me be an idiot. So I am an idiot specifically because among other things, uh, the poem I'm reading is about a rape. It is about a, a magical, maybe metaphorical, maybe even half willing, the word half willing appears in the poem, uh, rape, but it is a rape, and the poem and my commentary largely focus on the perspective and uh, interpretation of the guy married to the woman who gets raped, rather than on the woman herself. That is, you know, that's the poem's perspective. It is, I think, a very well done poem. I think it probably reads much better if you put it in my magical quotation marks, thinking about it not just as a straightforward uh, utterance by the poet, but maybe as a dramatization of somebody who in that circumstance, which again is probably not really real and certainly is not realistic, might feel uh, inadequate <laughs> empathy for his fucking wife. Uh, I, um, I, <laughs> so I, you know, I, I figured rather than just waiting for Alice to yell at me, I would uh, own up to that now. Uh, I also thought, why not let you listen to the things I have to say about it? Because, uh, you know, I don't think I can totally write off the poem. I still think it's a pretty well done poem. I just think it has a huge fucking blind spot, which my uh, commentary does as well. If that will make you too angry to listen to, uh, I totally understand, though I do have at the very end of this episode for the last five minutes or so, a really fun preview of that AMA. All right, enough, uh, <laughs> enough uh, uh, post-production commentary. Here is uh, a, I think, good poem with a big and, in retrospect, incredibly obvious flaw. 
which, which also goes for everything I had to say about it. Thank you and apologies. Gods by Hayden Carruth. Sometimes it occurs to me in the moonlit stillness of the summer night that Dionysus will come and take you from me. He will rest your half-willing body away to fields not far from here, disconsolingly close, where you will gaspingly love the god of passion and wine, thinking of me fleetly in a minim of sorrow song. What else may the lover of someone as beautiful as you expect? The gods are besotted with beauty. In my reftness I cry, I bawl, a two-day calf in the bitter Nevadan gale. I too am mythological. Dear woman, when you are bruised and bleeding and shaken and indubitably pregnant with holiness, will you come back to me even so, to calm my fury that can have no expression for fear of the fate of heaven blasting me into nothing. To soothe my horror with your bleeding, broken presence. Maybe together, hand in hand, touching experimentally, we may find in our ghosthood some shabby tissue of humanity, still brave and somehow comely in our humiliation. Part of the effectiveness of this poem, which is a, you know, on, one, on the one hand, like a, a, a straightforward narrative, there's this imagined uh, event where a god takes uh, his um, much younger wife away and impregnates her and, uh, and then returns her to him. But the, there are all of these sort of wonderful qualifications along the way. Her half-willing body. He takes her not that far away. It's disconsolingly close. She says, it says she thinks of him fleetly, which is odd because what you might think fleetingly, but then fleetly is, it's maybe even more minor. It's even quicker. It's more quickly said than fleetingly. She maybe, and maybe she's thinking of him on purpose quickly. His love of her and his appreciation of her beauty is equal parts admiration and jealousy. It's, it's not clear exactly whether his fear of losing her or his apprehension of her qualities comes first. The gods are besotted with beauty. There's something excusing what happened there, excusing what the gods do. In my reftness I cry, I bawl a two-day calf in the bitter Nevadan gale, I too am mythological. He's both dramatizing his loss and sort of mocking it. I too am mythological, and the mythological, you know, the, and the, the implication of mythological there might even be not, not just grand and uh, mythic, but a little bit fussy, a little bit um, insubstantial. You know, we use myth today also to mean lie. Dear woman, when you are bruised and bleeding and shaken and indubitably pregnant with holiness, the gods, of course, never make love in vain. They never even rape in vain. A demigod is always the result.
Will you come back to me even so to calm my fury that can have no expression for fear of the fate of heaven blasting me into nothing? I hear there that same qualified sorrow that uh, the Beowulf poet spoke about. And the, the man who sees his son uh, shot accidentally by another son or uh, the man who sees his son hanged for, uh, violate, for, for, for committing a crime against the king. He cannot even complain about what has been done to him because it has been done to him by the highest authority. To soothe my horror with your bleeding broken presence. He asks for her to help him with his wounds in a condition in which she herself was wounded. Caruth did marry a much younger woman. Actually, you know, I don't know if he ever married her. He, he, was, he lived with her for uh, a good number of years. Um, she was some 30 or more years younger than he was. And he wrote often about how beautiful she was and how unlikely it was that she would end up with him. And despite all of the violation and loss and even maybe something like betrayal in this poem, it ends with communion. It ends with the two of them coming together. And, and somehow uh, the... The, and the loss is not diminished or, or undone. It's not resolved. It actually becomes the vehicle of their reconciliation. It becomes the way in which they are brought together, still brave and somehow comely in our humiliation. And that humiliation comes shortly after humanity as, a, um, as an echo and maybe as an elaboration Sometimes it occurs to me in the moonlit stillness of the summer night. Some, you know, the, the whole thing starts with a whim. It's like the beginning of uh, The Unbearable Lightness of Being when Milan Kundera says, well, let's just imagine for the sake of a thought experiment that there was this man and there was this woman. And that's how the novel begins. And then, and then he gets invested and they become real. They become incredibly real. And we get invested too, even though he's just told us that he just made them up for the sake of argument. So that was Gods by Hayden Carruth, and this is Slee Ricketts. Thank you all for listening, and stay tuned for a preview of an upcoming AMA, AUA, Ask Us Anything, that I recorded with Alice and Brian. I, I can't remember if I've told the horrible story about us accidentally breaking up our friend's uh, live-in boyfriend long-term relationship over a dumb joke at a bar once. No, no. That no. Do like you remember this, Brian? I think I do, but I want you to go yeah. first to make sure I don't accidentally tell a different story where we've broken <laughs> up our other friends' long-term relationships. It was an part. Part of why it's so memorable is that it, it introduced me to a new type of person that I hadn't at the time fully. Like I remember in college uh, having having experience with this this girl that I, in retrospect, like boy, I must have seemed like, I should have seemed like a real creep. But I was studying late night at a, at a diner and uh, working on a paper I had to write for the next or class the next morning. And a pretty girl in cat eye glasses was extremely drunk at the diner and wandering around by the door. And I said, do you need a ride home <laughs> out of nowhere as a total stranger? And she said, yes, please. Which is, you know, uh, ter terrible judgment all around. But she, I, we had a weird evening together. I did write my paper, didn't do anything uh, indecorous. But um, I remember, like, it was a, it was like one of the first times, like talking to her a little further as she sobered up. I realized, like, oh, 
she's not a smart librarian. She's just wearing cat eye glasses. <laughs> um, and so this is sort of the experience we had with this guy where we had like a, a truly brilliant woman who was in our program uh, who was a like a writer and a critic and, and went on to do very impressive scholarly work and get a PhD in uh, uh, now Spanish a literature. Tenure or tenure track professor, I think. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, like very, yeah, very successful yeah. Um, scholar. Uh, she <laughs> was dating this young hip guy who had lived with her, I think in New York or in Chicago. It was like some major, I, mean, I think it was New York. And he, he, um, they lived in an apartment together in uh, Baltimore. Uh, he came along with her uh, and you understand the story is not flattering uh, of us. No, it's terrible. Ah. We are monsters yeah, okay. in the story. Okay. We're terrible yeah, yeah, yeah. in the story. All right. As uh, long as you understand that the, we are, we're not the hero of this. Of yeah, this tale. it's one of the most like discreetly bad things I've done, and I yeah. did it genuinely by accident, but not by trying to be a good person. By trying to be a mild dick, and and then accidentally being a huge dick. Uh, yeah. So we had, we did, there are readings at this bar called The Den, which was trying to be what my New York friends told me was a, a, the offensive term, a bridge and tunnel club. It was trying to be a bridge and tunnel club in like midtown Baltimore and like above a Indian restaurant in a way that didn't make any sense. And the guys apparently like sold a lot of drugs and that was like, they were, it was a bizarre, it was an insane place to do any kind of business. We, we threw a hell of a read series we got funding for it which meant we that did a yeah. yeah it was a we should talk about that reading series because there are some i think it had some highs and some lows Agreed. i think it was some of the best and worst social choices we've made <laughs> uh social and, and aesthetic but he, so we were waiting outside this bar had promotional you know drink promotions all the time one night of the week it was half off drinks one night it was two for one drinks, which is the same as half off drinks. And then one night it was coin flip Tuesday, which is you flip a coin to, or as to whether you pay for your drink. Statistically also identical to half off drinks and two for one drinks. It's all the same promotion, but it depended on which night of the week it was. And so the guy came to, the, he, we were sitting outside, I was smoking again. And this guy who was dating our friend came up and he said, uh, so it's coin flip day. And we said, no, 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 it's it's uh, two for one day or half off to whatever it was. And he said, oh, I really thought it was coin flip day today. We're like, no, that's that's Tuesday. Uh, but then we decided to do a bit where we would, yeah. the bit would be, do you want to relate the bit? No. Because I think I, I was doing an impression of like what I thought was you, but I was being, yeah. instead of being like light and funny, I was being a jerk. So what, tell, yeah, tell got, Alice what dark. the bit no, was. No, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mess it up. But I also, I said, I don't get embarrassed about stuff. Me being mean in the past is, I think, what embarrasses me the most. So this this is a full circle. I'm not going to be able to tell I, the story. I didn't. I really adequately. didn't think we were being mean. I thought we were. I thought he was laughing with us. They're like you know those times where like people are laughing at you, but you think they're laughing with you. We were laughing with him, yeah. but it, in retrospect, we were laughing at him. So so the bit was, hey, you know what you should do you should go up there and say, I want to flip a coin for my drink. And when the bartender says, no, that's tomorrow, tonight's half off drinks, you say, God damn it. I want a coin flip Tuesday. I refuse, this is this is an outrage. And you, you, you knock over whatever's on the bar and you slam your fist down and you scream at the guy and you don't take no for an answer. And he, and he said, yeah, yeah, I should really do that. I should, I should not take no for an answer and say coin flip Tuesday or death. And 
we were all talking in such a sarcastic tone of voice and he was joining in this sarcastic tone of voice and it was so obviously a silly sarcastic bit and then he came down several minutes later and he was sweaty and his face was sort of white no. like that did not go well <laughs> he said yeah well i won't say your name he said my girlfriend got so mad at me <laughs> when i slammed my fist on the bar and screamed at the bartender and the man at I don't know if we can recover from this. It's really a bad idea. Why did, why why did, did you we, tell me to do this? Me to do that. I thought I thought this was like the kind of thing that poets like to do. Why did you tell me to do that? And he was so sad. He was and so it, defeated. And that was in the moment I realized like, oh, he wears like hipster clothes and he talks in a sarcastic voice and he dates like a cool, beautiful, like brilliant young woman. But like he's a dum-dum. Like he's just a dumb man. That was a preview of a Secret Show episode. There's a This will be coming out soon on the Secret Show feed. You can go to sleeverickets.substack.com and sign up now. Just put in your email address and you will get a free week's subscription within which time the rest of that episode should be out. You can listen to the other 10 Secret Show episodes that are up there now. Thanks very much.